We're thinking today, and much is being said in these days, about the comparison between things that are real and things that are fake. Our president has some things to say when it comes to what is real and what is fake when it comes to the news. You have certainly heard plenty of that. In our logo for our new sermon series, there are a number of different areas that you can see here where sometimes things that are fake are tried to be passed off for things that are real. One of those, which we were just talking about in the bumper, has to do with Christmas trees. A lot of people use fake, a lot of people use real. I'm just wondering, quick little poll here, how many of you during this most recent Christmas season, whatever venue you're in, if you just slip up your hand, how many of you used a real Christmas tree? All right, there, there are lots of you, and you like put your hands up so proudly too. It's like, I do. Yeah, I always have, all right? How many of you do it the wrong way? Okay, yeah, all right. All the rest of you are the artificial tree people, the fake tree people. In our house, for 25 years in a row, we did the real Christmas tree. We went out, we cut it down, I played lumberjack, had the saw. We have pictures from all of those years. We can just watch the girls kind of grow up as, the, as we got our tree each year. But a couple of years ago, we switched, and now we're kind of a fake tree family. In fact, we've got like 15 fake trees at our house, but that's a whole other story. That's a whole other story we won't get into now. But uh, I, I don't think that we're ever going back, in part because now the tree just stays set up in the storage room and it's just lugging it into the living room and plugging it in. It's that easy. But it's not just that. I came to discover something else I had never known before about real Christmas trees. There was a study that came out, and I read it this last season a study about real Christmas trees that when you bring that into your house, you are bringing as many as 25,000 bugs with it. I'm not, I'm not making this up, all right? You are bringing in things like spiders, mites, edelgids, praying mantises, or praying manti. I'm not sure which way that would go. Bark beetles and many other things. I didn't want to mention that during the Christmas season because I thought I could spoil your Christmas but uh, some of you probably still have your real tree up in your house. But don't worry about it because most of the bugs that were in that tree are either dead now or they've relocated to your upholstered furniture and your carpet and your bed pillows. Some of you might have some of those bugs in your hair right now. Feel that itching? Yeah, we're watching. Whoever's scratching your head right now, we know you've got a real tree at home, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, today we are kicking off this sermon series called The Real Thing, and we're going to be thinking about what is real versus what is fake. And it's one thing when we're talking about Christmas trees, it's something altogether different when we're talking about lives. Because my suspicion is that you can think about people that you know, and you think that a few of them are kind of fake, don't you? that you watch the way they live their lives and it's like, there's just something that doesn't compute here. They just don't seem very genuine to me. Or somebody that you look at and you hear the way that they talk and who they purport to be, but you watch their lives and you know they're not quite what it is that they're saying that they are. And where this gets particularly penetrating is when we think of the fact that there are times we're trying to pass ourselves off as something that we're not. That we are the ones who are fake. What we need is some sort of a, a measuring stick, an objective measuring stick that we could look at that would help us to measure our own lives to see how we're doing. 
as well as give us some sort of a path on which to run, something that says, here is the North Star, as it were, that we are to run after in this regard. And thankfully, we've got that measuring stick. We've got it right in the pages of the Scriptures. And what we're going to be doing in the weeks that are ahead is we're going to be considering that yardstick. We're going to be taking a look at a letter in the New Testament that helps us to know where it is that God would have us to go if we are going to be the real thing. If we are going to not look fake in the lives of other people, if we're going to consider where it is that God would be taking us and actually get to those places, how do we get there? Well, we're going to be studying that over the course of these next weeks together. That letter that I'm referring to that talks about the real thing is 1 John. It's a book in the Bible. It's a letter, actually, near the end of the Bible, near the end of the New Testament. It's just before Revelation. It's easy to find. If you would like to turn there, I'd encourage you to do so. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to bring your Bible every single week because we're just going to make our way through this letter, verse by verse, all the way through, looking at very practical realities for who we are and where it is that we're going if we're going to be the real thing. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of these page numbers in the venue that you are in in the worship center and you can find it there or you can also go to you version as always now one little one little note about this particular series these page numbers these bibles that are provided for you are actually the new international version which we have typically been studying from for this series we're going to be using the esv the english standard version and uh, you might have a copy of that at home i'd encourage you to bring that with you week by week or if you use the you version app the verses that we always have in there, the outline is always in there for you to look at. Those will be the English Standard Version. And if you know your way around the Bible app, you can, I'm sure, find your way to that version anyway. But that's where we are going to be headed and how we're going to get there. And so looking very much forward to taking you through this. Now, before we actually jump into the text itself, I just want to take a moment to set up this letter for you, to tell you just a little bit of background. It is a letter. It is written by this guy named John. John is one who has written other letters and other books in the New Testament. In fact, he wrote a series of letters. We call them rather simply 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. They're all right there at the end of the New Testament. He also wrote the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. He also wrote the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a record of Jesus' life. What he, how he lived and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. And you can read about it. And John was uniquely gifted and uniquely positioned to be the one to write about Jesus' life because he knew him very well. Because John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And beyond that, sometimes you hear the talk of the inner three among the disciples, Peter, James, and John. That's our guy. That's John that we are talking about. Sometimes he's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved, not because Jesus didn't love all the disciples, but because there was a special closeness that John experienced with Jesus himself. When John writes this letter we're going to be looking at, it's later on in his life. He's an older man at this point. He's probably about 90 A.D. or so as this letter is being written. He's living in Ephesus, and he's writing the letter to a series of house churches that are nearby. Most churches in that day were smaller house churches, but also to some other established churches in further off regions, many of which Paul had planted in one of his gospel 
journeys. And John's writing to them, and you'll see in the content of the letters we make our way along that he's addressing a number of problems that existed in the church at that time. That's right, problems in the first century church. Sometimes we look at that and we think, well, that would have been the perfect time to be in the church. That's the idyllic church. Well, no, it's not. And we're going to see that there were problems that they had, and John is addressing those here. This particular region of the world was sort of a crossroads of travelers, and they would come and they would pass through this Ephesus region, and, and roads came through, and it was a shipping port, and a lot of people would come in on ships, and some would just settle right there, and with them, they would bring all sorts of different ideas, religious ideas, philosophical ideas, and so you had a little bit of a melting pot of ideas in the church. They'd settle in, and they'd bring with them their thoughts. Some of those were Christian thoughts. Some were kind of loose, transitioning Christian thoughts. Some some of those were just outright pagan thoughts that were being brought to the table. And add to that that the culture at this particular time was very much inclusivistic. There was tremendous religious tolerance at the time. And so if you had a thought and you brought it into the church and you shared it, it was kind of an environment where it was like, well, we need to listen to that. We need to maybe learn from that. And so there's this whole melting pot of ideas that are going on. In fact, the only thing that wasn't tolerated was an exclusive belief system that claimed to have truth. Is this sounding familiar to you at all? Does this not sound a lot like the day and age that we live in? A very inclusivistic sort of culture, a religiously tolerant sort of culture where whatever anybody believes is to be accepted as that's truth at least it's truth for them and if you think any different than that then you are intolerant or you are narrow-minded it's very much the same culture or environment that we live in today that John was writing to in the first century and one of those beliefs that John was combating in this letter and we'll see more about it was something that's called Gnosticism a subset of which was docetism, which is actually this idea or one of the tenets of that belief system was that Jesus could not possibly have been fully God and fully man. He couldn't have come as God in the flesh because they believed that all flesh was evil. And so if Jesus came and was born into humankind, then he was evil. And so what you have is Christianity itself very much being on trial, and people were getting confused, and, and they needed some just level-headed teaching to speak right into the, into the moment and right into the religious understanding of the day. And John knew that, and he was uniquely positioned to be that one because he'd been one who'd spent three years with Jesus, listening to what Jesus had to say, watching him perform miracles, and on and on. And I think it's fair to say that we live in a culture today that also has some tremendous confusion when it comes to all things spiritual. That's true on the part of those who are on the outside who just kind of watch casually or are just completely apathetic about all things spiritual, but it doesn't stop there. The confusion also comes inside of the church. And there are a number of people who very much find themselves confused when it comes to this and, and their belief systems and we're not exactly sure what we believe and what we don't believe and that can happen in Pathway also. Barna did a study, here are some interesting results of that study, beliefs about God. 90% of people believe in a God or gods who have power over the universe. That's a lot of people who believe that there is a God but what is it that we believe about that God? 64% of people believe that everybody prays to the same God. That there is just one God out there and we all believe in the same 
God. 54%, you might say, well, there are a lot of kind of weird people and weird religions out there, so that number doesn't surprise me so much. Well, how about a little closer to home? Of those who claim to be born again, 48% of people say, it's all the same God. It's all just one big thing. You see, well, there's some, there might be some unusual people in that category too. Well, how about evangelicals? 46% of evangelicals agree. They're saying there is just one God in every world religion is just worshiping that same God just in different ways. There's confusion, my friends. Tremendous confusion that exists out there. We're back to this sort of melting pot of ideas that whatever anybody believes, and isn't it all just one thing, and can't we all just get along, and, and what's so different about this one versus that one, and, and all of the rest. I don't think that the problem is that people don't care. I think the problem is that there is confusion. I'm guessing that most of the people that you work with, that are around you in your neighborhood, that you sit next to on the soccer bleachers or basketball bleachers, they're not antagonistic. They're just in this kind of melting pot that has cast sort of this fog over all things spiritual. And where the fog exists there is also sort of this demotivation to go after something because there's confusion. Whenever you have confusion, it defeats your desire to go and, and do something about it, at least for most people. That's how they respond. And what is needed is some clarity, something to break through the fog. And, and John knew that, and that's why he writes First John. And so that there might be something that would break through that fog and help people to understand. And what was so powerful for those that he was writing to in the first century, you can see how it would be so powerful for those of us who are in the 21st century because so many of the things are the same. So much of the culture is the same in the way that spiritual things in particular are being processed. This is really important because I think people want to have and find clarity. I think that we all want to be the real thing. And I think that we can find it in what it is we're going to be looking at. The details of this letter help us there. Each week we're just going to see another component of real thing living, if you will. And this book, just this letter, just takes us down through. What would you, what would you look like if you're a genuine follower of Christ, what would be true in your life in this regard or in that regard? And we're going to see that as we make our way along. And John gets all of that started in these first four verses we're gonna look at today, which are really an introduction that point out that if we're going to become the real things ourselves, then our efforts need to be rooted in something or rooted in someone other than ourselves. See, what was happening that leads to the confusion or what is happening that leads to the confusion is everybody thinks that their way is the right way. And so we've got all sorts of different definitions of what is the real thing. I think I'm the real thing. You think you're the real thing. You think you're the real thing. And as a result, none of us are the real thing. It needs to be rooted in something. And there is that something. And John writes to tell us what that something is. This is critical because of the key truth that I want to point out for you today. And it is this right here. That you can't be the real thing until you see the real thing because you don't know what it is you're following after. And so that's really where this whole thing gets its start, its impetus. So that's where John begins this letter. He tells us about the one who is the real thing in a way to prepare us for developing the attributes that can lead us to becoming the real things ourselves. So the first thing that we see as John writes is that the real thing is revealed. Why? Because you can't be the real thing 
until you see the real thing. So God in his goodness reveals himself to us. That's where this whole, thing's get, this whole thing gets started. Go ahead and look, if you will. Let's jump into the text now in the minutes that we have remaining. First John chapter 1 and verse 1, this letter begins like this. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Stop there for a moment. This is a very interesting verse, especially as we consider our author and consider what else it is that our author has written. This is how he opens the epistle. Epistle is just another name for a letter. This is the way that he opens that, that which was from the beginning. Here's how he opens his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. It sounds like the same author, doesn't it? And it also sounds like he has this certain foundational idea that he wants to make sure that he is communicating in whatever form he writes and whenever it is he communicates. Here it says in the gospel, in the beginning was the word. In the epistle that we're studying, that which was from the beginning. He wants us to understand about Jesus. Not that Jesus was created or that Jesus was made. God, wasn't, God the Father wasn't walking along one day saying, I think it's time for the Son, and so let me create him now. Not at all. His point here is that Jesus is from the beginning, not made, not created. He simply is. Also in common between these two texts is the idea of the Word. Here it talks about the Word of life. Elsewhere in the, the Gospel, it talks about Jesus being the Word that was there in the beginning. And sometimes people get confused about this. But it's not that difficult. When you think about the Word of God, which is the Bible, that is for us to reveal to us who God is. When you think about the word of life, who is Jesus, he is also here to reveal to us who God is. That's what we're talking about, that the real thing is revealed. That's our whole first point. That's where it gets started, and it's significant. As we talked about, one of the, motion, or one of the notions being floated about Jesus was that he wasn't really God in the flesh. Well, here John shows up, who is an eyewitness, having experienced Jesus in the flesh. He'd seen him, he'd talked to him, along with all the disciples and many, many other people. He had even touched Jesus. He spent these three years along with him, and he is now combating this idea that God wasn't, or Jesus wasn't God in the flesh, and he's combating the false teachers who have been promoting that sort of idea all the way along, and they're in the church so that he might get people back to truth. It's a bold declaration, and it only takes John to the first sentence of his letter to point that out. That's how important it is to him. That's how foundational this is that we would understand it. Verse 2 is an exclamation point on that same idea. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is an extension of verse 1, but it real, reveals even more than that because it talks about the fact that he was made manifest. That he was made manifest. What does that mean? Well, it's a, it's a significant theological point, and it's also a very practical one for us as we think about our own relationship to God and who he is and what our relationship with him ought to be. It means that God in the form of Jesus was revealed to us. That's what made manifest means. He came and showed himself to 
us. We didn't need to go looking for him. He came to us. That is significant because one of the criticisms that sometimes is leveled against Jesus is that, well, he's just too distant. God is too distant. He's uncaring. He's not involved with my life here today, but that's not true. God wanted to be known, and so he went to very great lengths so that we might know who he is, so that we might know about him. He came to us. We just came through the Christmas season. What did we celebrate? We celebrated God with us, the fact that he came into our world. He chose to leave the comforts and the glory of heaven to come into our dark and nasty and dirty and filthy and sinful world. The other day I was trying to decide, am I going to go out and get a nice fresh hot pizza or am I going to stay home and eat leftovers? That was the decision I needed to make. How many of you would choose leftovers over a hot, fresh pizza? All right, there's one person, and she's lying. And uh, no, she, she's, she would never lie. But uh, all right, so, so I actually chose the leftovers because what I didn't tell you about the story is it was 20 below windchill outside, and I didn't want to have to brave the elements. Jesus braved the elements, didn't matter what was going on here on this earth. He didn't say, well, I just want to, for my own benefit, just stay in the comforts of where I am. He left heaven. He came into our dark and sinful and nasty world. And he did it for us so that he might be revealed to us, so that we might know about him, so that we might be able to experience life in him, so that we might see him, so that we could be like him. Because remember, you can't be like Jesus until you see Jesus. That's what we're talking about here today, so that we might know that eternal life. Today, my friends, here's the important thing to understand. You don't need to go looking for Jesus. You don't need to go trying to find him because he is just one decision to trust him away from your experiencing being full with him. You might even be here today as one who's been running from God. This is an experiment for you today. You're here today because it's the beginning of a new year and you just thought, well, I'll give it a try. What I've been doing hasn't been working very well, and so I'll give it a try. Or it's going to make somebody happy if I just show up at church today. So that's why you're here. You're not convinced. You've got questions. You've been running. But what I'm telling you today is that Jesus came to reveal himself to us so that regardless of how much you've been running, how far you've run from God, how much you have just done, a, done things that you know are exactly opposite of what God would have for you in your life, that he's still right here with you. Just a decision away from you experiencing the fullness of life in him. That's why he came, to reveal himself to us because he knew we would never be able to find him on our own. You can't be the real thing until you see the real thing. So he came to show himself to us. That's the first thing here in our passage is that the real thing is revealed. And it's so important for us to understand that John puts it right up front. Verse one, then again, verse two. Then it goes on. Also, we see here that the real thing enables fellowship. The real thing enables fellowship. Here's how this passage continues in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is just a very natural progression that John is describing here. He says, we have come and we have seen the Father, or we have seen Jesus, we have seen God, we've experienced 
time with him. We have even touched him. And so the very natural progression that comes next is that they would tell somebody about that, that we would proclaim to you what it is that we have seen and what it is that we have heard. If you see something like that, it just begs for something more. I mean, imagine this afternoon. Just imagine if, if you were sitting at home and the doorbell rings and at the door is Ben Roethlisberger, Le'Veon Bell, and Antonio Brown. They said, hey, we just wanted to come over and watch the games with you today because we've got to buy this week. Are you going to say anything about that on Monday to your friends at work? Yeah. In fact, why wait till Monday, right? You're going to be on your phone. You're going to be Snapchatting. You're going to be Marco Poloing. You're going to be snapping selfies. You're going to do everything you possibly can, even texting that old school stuff, so that you might be able to get the word out of what it is that you've just experienced. You're going to do that. I know that you're going to do that. That's the same thing that John is talking about here. It's a natural progression. Something awesome happens, and you got to tell some, somebody about it. John says, that which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim to you. Now, it's not so that he could brag. It's not so that he could impress people with how much access he has to God. It's so that other people could experience that for themselves. Look at what it says. We do this so that you too may have fellowship with us. That's what it's about. This idea of having fellowship is a very important one to our faith, and it exists on two planes. There's the fellowship that we have that exists between us and, and other believers in Jesus Christ. That's one level of the fellowship. The other level of fellowship is there is actually the relationship that we have together, the fellowship we have together with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. That's what verse three right here has said. There's something unusual about that sort of fellowship, that connection that we have that exists in that sort of environment. I'm sure that you've experienced it in other ways and in other environments and connections that you have with other people. It's one of the things that I've definitely come to see as I've kind of become a runner and walk in some of those environments because you meet another runner and it's like all of a sudden your your discussion goes on a deeper plane. You can like talk for hours about, about running and uh, sometimes you, you do, but it just goes on. The vocabulary that you're using to talk to one another changes. And the, the openness that you have toward one another just sort of goes exponential. Even though you were strangers a couple of seconds ago, it changes all of a sudden. I remember being at an airport gate and sitting across from this guy, and I could just tell he was a runner. I suspected that he was. He had the, kind of the look, and he had the clothes, and he had the shoes and, and all that. And so I said, you're a runner, aren't you? And he said, yeah. And immediately he starts talking and he starts opening up. I didn't know this guy like three minutes and he's telling me about his runner's diarrhea that he gets when he's running. And I'm like, look, look, dude, that's more runner intimacy than I want right now. And, and I sure hope I'm not sitting next to you on the plane and, you know, whatever. But that happens and you've experienced it, right? In some context where there's just sort of this fellowship that immediately erupts because of some common connection that you've got with that person. Well, that's what John says happens with us in fellowship in the Christian faith. And it's no no place more real than where it is, where Christ is involved, because that doesn't just change the conversation. Where Christ is involved in the hearts of believers in Christ, it's like a thread that just knits us together because there's something unusual, and you've probably experienced that. I've experienced that literally around the world with believers that you meet that don't even speak your language that you've never met before. And there's this instant connection. And that's what he's talking about. That's the fellowship that we can come to experience. 
And it's an evidence of the fact that there's a real thing that is happening in us because we've got this one-to-one embracing of one another and fellowship that we have come to experience with each other. It's the real thing that's found in Christ that enables that fellowship. And it's as we see that real thing that we can experience it for ourselves and come to the place where we can actually be the real thing because don't forget our key point that you can't be the real thing until you see the real thing. Christ is the one that makes all of the difference and that unites us together and changes the whole course of where we are and where it is that we're going. He's revealed so that we might know that. He enables fellowship, and there's one other piece to this, and that is that the real thing invites participation. The reason Jesus came was so that we might participate, participate in the plan of redemption of Jesus coming to this earth. It's just what it means is that he came and he died for us so that we might be seen as clean before the Father as we confess our sin, as we experience his forgiveness. And he comes so that we might find the joy of eternal life. That's how he wraps up this introduction in verse 4. It says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Your footnote probably says, so that your joy may be complete. Either way, kind of the same meaning is what is brought out here. There are two different levels of participation that are in view here in these opening verses, both of which will lead to joy. The first is those who mirror the response of John after his encounter with Jesus. He cannot help but proclaim to other people what it is that he has come to experience for himself, and so that's what he does. Then if you've come to know Jesus, then I would ask you, where is it that you're proclaiming what it is that you've come to know? You see, all of that confusion that exists out there in the world, you've got an answer to that if you're a believer in Christ. If you know what it is that his word has to say, I'm not saying do you know every answer? Would you be able to answer any question that's possible? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that you do have an answer to where is the real thing found. And you can proclaim that to others if you would choose to, but some of you are not choosing to. But you can. And I'm wondering, where is it in your life? With whom is it that you might be able to move the needle on this? As we get this new year started, I think that this is a wonderful time for us to consider this piece of who we are and where we're going and how it is that we're living. Because for some of us, we've been feeling so guilty for so long about the fact that we need to be speaking up about our faith and we've done nothing. We've moved no needles in no lives. At least not with intentionality. And so what I would challenge you to do today is to consider who is it That by the end of this series that we have together, which is going to take us almost up to Easter, who is it whose life I could speak into? Where do I need to proclaim what it is that I've come to see and know and learn about being the real thing? Where is it that I can proclaim that? Who is it with whom I can share that news and see the needle moved in their life? We've talked to you many times about something that we call pathway to life around here. And it's got four different steps to it, the first three of which I just want to review with you very quickly right now. First of those steps is to initiate, to get acquainted with or engaged with someone with whom you might share and proclaim this good news about what it is that you know. For some of us, we've been walking in Christian circles for so long, we've really got no significant connection to anybody outside of the faith. 
And it's time to initiate in a relationship. Maybe it's somebody in the neighborhood. They're there. Maybe you've been kind of feeling guilty about the fact that you haven't spoken up. But they're there. It's time to initiate. It's not that you're not acquainted at all, but it's time to initiate on a new level, on a new plane. And once we are initiated into relationship, then the next thing to do is to invest in that relationship. Do something that allows you to get on the next level with that person. Take them to coffee, invite them into the house for dinner. Do something, take them to lunch, whatever, to give you the opportunity to get it to a new place. Invest in their life. Let them know a little bit about you. You learn a little bit about them so that ultimately you might be able to lastly invite. In one of two ways. Invite them into a relationship with Christ or invite them to church. Either way. Who would it be in your life that God might bring to your mind that you, over the course of this series, before it's over, you would have through step three? That you would have just brought, don't think of it as steps, just think of it as that you would have brought to the place where you've invited them into relationship with Jesus that you've come to experience or invited them to come and join you and be a part of what we do at Pathway. Who would that person be? I wonder if you'd be bold enough to actually write down on a slip of paper, on the outline today, in your Bible, just somewhere, the name of that person and make it a personal commitment to go after this and to really do this. For some of you who've been feeling so guilty for so long, what better time than just as we get this new year kicked off to say, all right, I'm going to do it. Finally, I'm going to do this. Maybe rip off that little piece of paper, stick it in your wallet, stick the whole outline in your purse, whatever, just so you're reminded of it. So you don't just leave things where they've been. So that a year from now, you're no further on in that relationship than you were a year ago or that you are right now. If you're going to be the real thing, Jesus came to reveal himself to you. We have, as John says, a responsibility and what should be an irresistibility to share, to proclaim what it is that we know. That's the first level of this participation. Second level of participation would be for those of you who have yet to have your heart changed. Where when we talk about having fellowship with one another, it's like, what are you talking about? I've never come to experience that. Because your own heart has not been transformed. What John is saying is that Jesus came so that he might be revealed, so that we might have that fellowship. You can't be the real thing until you see the real thing, but you don't just see, you respond. You say to God, this is something that I want. I want my life to be different. And what better time than now as we see and understand the reason that Jesus came was so that we might know. What better time than now as a new year gets started to put your life into the hands of the Savior? Say, well, I have a few questions. Yeah, I think we all have a few questions. Doesn't mean that everyone has to be answered before you jump in. It's like, this makes sense. I believe that Jesus is real. That he came to love and to die for me so that I might find that life. Then give your heart and your life over to Jesus. And do it today. I want to give you that opportunity. Would you all please bow your heads with me? If that's where you are today and you're ready to make that decision, make that choice for yourself and your life, 
What a better time than now just to surrender yourself to Jesus. Say, thank you for coming and revealing yourself to me. So you can pray a prayer. Just talk to God, something like this. Just say this silently where you are. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus, for loving me enough to send him so that I might come to see and understand. Thank you that his reason in coming was so that he might take my sin out of the way. I confess that sin to you today. I ask for your forgiveness. I choose to put my trust in you today. Give me that fellowship with one another and with you. Change my life. Make me yours. Thank you for your love. Their heads are still bowed. Friends, I, I'm so encouraged by the movement of the Spirit in a place like this and in lives like yours. And if you just prayed that now, if you've made that commitment as this new year begins to put yourself in this new place in relationship with Jesus, I'd love to know about it. And I would just like to ask you, if you're here today and that that's a prayer that you've just prayed, if you would just slip your hand up so that I might see it, so I might know. Hold it up for just a minute so I can acknowledge it. Yeah, down in the front on my left, I see that. Who else? Near the back on my left, thank you. Yes, on my far right, thank you. See it. Anyone else today? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these lives that have chosen to not just go into a new year in the same old way, but to find a new connection with you. Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for these people, for others perhaps who haven't raised their hands but have taken this step as well. Lord, we're so encouraged by the fact that you're with us, that you love us, that you came to be with us, to reveal yourself to us. But I pray as we consider what it means to be the real thing, that we would follow after you, that we would discover that and we would live to be those people. We pray in Jesus' name.